Good morning, Hayden Bible. Happy Sunday. Why don't we bow our heads? Father in heaven, we're assembled here today grateful that you, Lord, by the grace of Jesus Christ, by his cleansing blood, have made us a bright, shining city set on a hill. Lord, we gladly shine that light, the the righteous light of Christ this morning. Father, thank you for making us worthy based on his merit. Thank you for calling us in, making us born again, giving us a, a new heart affection and joy of the city of God. Today, Holy Spirit, we welcome you to teach us. We ask you to be here. Illumine your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, Lord, hearts to understand. Lord, we pray today as we sing praises to your name and open your word that you're blessed and that it pleases you. In Christ's name, amen. This morning, as we continue our series on God's church, before we get to our Ephesians passage, yes, there it is, our Ephesians passage, I'd like to start in the book of Haggai. So if you go to Matthew and go three letters back, you'll find Haggai. That's probably the easiest way to find it. You might remember in Haggai's days, when Israel had returned from their captivity in Babylon, that kind of, kind of near the end of the history of the Old Testament that Haggai prophesied regarding the rebuilding of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. The temple was, in a sense, the dwelling place of God's glory among his people. His very glorious presence had been manifested in the heart of that temple. But his glory eventually departed from that temple. You can read about that in Ezekiel 8. And forward, and in a promise of a greater, more glorious temple was communicated through Haggai. Look at Haggai 2, starting in verse 7. The Lord says, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Just a few verses earlier, Haggai writes of the Lord asking the governor and the high priest and the remnant people about this current post-exile temple that was being restored. And the Lord asks them, he says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? This reconstructed temple was sizing up to be dismal in comparison to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple certainly exploded with brilliance of craftsmanship. It was stunning. But even more so, that temple was filled with the very glory of God himself. And as we read in Haggai 2.9, God assures his people that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. 
This time, he says, he's going to shake all the nations, filling his house, his temple, the center of Israel's worship with his glory. This morning, we're, as we continue our series, we're blessed to see that there is an end-time temple under construction. And the glory of this temple will far exceed the tabernacle and all other temples that merely served as imagery for this real temple that's being built. And you might be surprised when you understand the building materials being used to construct this temple. And you might also be surprised at the size the far-reaching extent of this temple. We'll see that like with the tabernacle of Exodus and the temple of Solomon, this end-time temple in the city of our great God has a purpose that was set before the foundation of time. And we'll explore this morning the marks of this temple coming down out of heaven from God. In our passage today, we'll see that construction has begun. The preliminary earthwork is started and has been finished, actually. And the cornerstone is set. In fact, the first rows of blocks have been laid. And as Haggai prophesied, the nations of the earth are involved. The nations are now being plundered through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I, washed by the blood, forgiven and redeemed, are tangible evidence of this plundering. Because today we need to be convinced that only the church is the temple of God's glory on this earth. The church, the holy temple in the Lord, in Christ, the place where heaven and earth meet. Like in the garden with Adam, or the tabernacle with Moses, or the temple with Solomon, but with even greater glory. And as such, the church has characteristics or marks of her heavenly birth, her heavenly new creation origin. Let's talk about these things. Let's go now to our passage in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. So then, Paul writes, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul here, speaking to Gentiles, speaking to non-Israeli people who really had no part with God over the centuries in a sense, people like us in Idaho, people like us who think of Israel as way over there, Chances are most, if not all of us in this room, have no bloodline connection with Israel. But assembled together here, we are an intimate group of people who have been touched by the mercy and grace of our great God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the good news that our just God forgives sins because he has put his wrath on his son through the cross. And you and I can be forgiven through repentance or turning away from our own pathway of life and turning to simply trust in Christ alone as our once for all sacrifice for our sins. It's good news. 
I can escape. I, you and I, we can escape the wrath of God by trusting that Christ endured it for us. We can be set free from the condemnation of hell purely by his grace. I'll tell you what, if you don't think that's good news, check your pulse. It's good news. Look closer at our passage, verse 19. Paul writes and says, So then you, non-Jewish people, who have indeed repented and trusted in Christ, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Remember from Haggai that God said that he would shake all the nations, not only uh, the, the faithful remnant out of Israel, but America and China and New Zealand, redeeming hearts from every place, bringing them into God's family along with believing Israel. Remember Abraham was promised that he would be a blessing to the nations. And remember that Isaiah prophesied that all the nations would stream to the mountain of the house of the Lord in Isaiah 2. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, this blessing is being realized. And anyone from any nation, not just Israel, can trust in Christ and be brought into God's family along with believing Israel. Notice verse 19 in Ephesians 2 says that the saints in Ephesus were no longer strangers, no longer aliens. But now, instead, instead of being far off, the Ephesian Gentiles are now fellow citizens. And now of God's household. And also, don't go there, but in Romans 11, Paul tells us that the Romans, the Gentiles that were by grace through faith, that they were grafted into God's overall plan for his people, a plan that's been unfolding throughout history. A plan formulated even before creation. A plan of redemption and glory. A plan for a holy people of God's own possession. So you and I, we're no longer strangers to God's household. Once we were far off. But all of us here who stand fast in the cleansing blood have been brought near. He knows us. And he has made us part of his family. You see, the temple that Haggai prophesied about was a temple not made with human hands. A temple with the wealth of nations, people from everywhere, every tribe, tongue, and nations, and through his indwelling presence in this end-time temple, a presence that he says will reach far outside the, the boundaries of Israel. His glory will spread across the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the latter glory of this house This holy temple in the Lord will be greater than the former. The former tabernacle and temple, their literal singular existence was only meant to serve as imagery for this true temple that's under construction. The true place of worship. The place of worship planned before time. Because the very presence of God will flood the earth through his church as we grow, spreading the good news and bringing our other brothers and sisters into the body through the preaching of the word and the gospel. As you read through scripture, you can see the many times that God has manifested his glory to people in special places, can't you? His glory was shown in the provision of manna in the desert. His glory was shown in a pillar of fire and cloud in the wilderness. 
On Mount Sinai, it says that his glory was showing as he gave the law and passing by the cleft of the rock where he left Moses, or excuse me, where he hid Moses. And because the church is the temple of God's glory on the earth, now God displays his glory through us. An assembly of summoned dead people. As amazing as that sounds. Dead people that he's brought to life through the resurrection power of the gospel and regenerating work of his Holy Spirit. And he's made us to shine his light to all the nations as his unified and holy and truth-bearing centerpiece of heavenly worship. And we're going to come back to these marks of the church in a minute. Again, back to our passage, verse 20. This temple has a foundation. Listen, as Paul writes, he writes that you Ephesians and you Idaho people are members of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Aligned to Christ as the first stone set, the New Testament apostles and prophets are the foundation of God's end-time temple, the temple not made with hands. In fact, in Revelation 21.14, the apostle John himself describes the same idea, the foundation that we're talking about. He writes that the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It was the apostles who received the revelation that, from God that established the New Testament that we have in our laps this morning. And they preached and wrote, excuse me, and wrote regarding the truths of the New Covenant and the signs and wonders that they performed authenticated that this truth was from God himself. And after having been given his full revelation they handed down to us the scriptures with the authentication fully complete in their day. Our Bibles are the fullness of the confirmed revelation to be expected from God, and the foundation is laid. No more revelation is needed. The inerrant, infallible word is complete and sufficient for God's church. And more specifically, here in Ephesians, the apostles and prophets received the foundational full revelation of what God had alluded to throughout the Bible. Specifically, the truth that including the Gentiles, people like us, into the family of God by grace through faith was part of his plan from before the foundation of creation. By the way, beginning in Romans 9.23, he did so... God did so to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. He says also in Hosea, in the Old Testament, he says, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. The mystery has been revealed. We're part of the deal, beloved. He will shake all the nations, and the latter glory of this house, this later temple, will be greater than the former. 
A few verses earlier, the Apostle Paul recites why the fullness of this specific revelation regarding us as Gentiles might have been so surprising. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul writes that we Gentiles were at one time separate from Christ and therefore excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Remember, by the way, that the promise that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. And in Haggai, God said that he would shake all the nations. And at one time, we had no hope. Because we were here without God in the world, wandering aimlessly like everybody else out there. But now, he says in verse 13, In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ Jesus, in him, by his blood. Back to verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. There's an end time building construction project underway and Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the first rows of blocks. And you and I are a being. We're being fitted together by God into a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple that all other temples looked forward to and served as mere imagery. A holy temple that all other temples expected. Peter blesses us with the same imagery from 1 Peter 2.5. He writes and says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. The building materials of this temple are people. The very glory of God dwelling in people from everywhere. This temple is huge. Remember the imagery from actual history. From Exodus 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And again later in Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 7. When Solomon had finished praying. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And finally, the day came when these tangible, real-life images were fully realized, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And when he took his throne, after he had put an end to sacrifices, the once for all sacrifice lasting for all time, the king of glory began to construct the real temple, the lasting one, the one whose foundations will never be shaken. In Acts 2, the glory of the Lord filled this temple Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple of God's glory on the earth. 
From before the foundation of the world, God has determined to spread his glory through the planet, through all those who come to him by grace, through faith in the temple in Jesus Christ. Look back at Ephesians 2.22. In whom, in whom you are all also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You're not separate from Christ. You're in him. He's in you. You're not excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You're included with believing Israel in Christ. You're no longer a stranger to the covenants of promise. You're among the blessed of the nations. You're a recipient of the benefit of the covenants. You have hope now. You're with God in the world. You have purpose and you have meaning and you have a future in Christ. So whoop-de-doo. What's all this fascinating stuff mean to me? Temples and glory and a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling of God in the Spirit, the city of God. How does this matter to me? I just go to church. Would you like to know? Listen, guys, this means everything. It turns out that this is what your life is actually about. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If, it, if many, any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. Let's spend the rest of our time considering the purpose of God's church, the, the, really the marks of the church, the holy temple in the Lord. Remember, the church is the temple of God's glory on earth. And first of all, God's church is a unified temple displaying his glory. God's church is a unified, unified Temple displaying his glory. Look back at our passage in Ephesians 2. Notice the phrases, fellow citizens. God's household. Fitted together. Built together. Do you guys see a theme here? In fact, the word you in verse 22 is plural. In the original Greek it says that in Christ you all are being built together into this dwelling place of God. In his book, The Church, by Jeffrey D. Johnson, he writes that the church consists of different members who are united to form a single entity, in that the church has multiple members who are spiritually united and interlocked into one body under the single headship of Christ Jesus. Thus the church is one. You can't have a good study without going to Romans. So Romans 12.5, the Apostle Paul writes and says, We who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we're members of one another. Members of one another. Back in 2016, our brother Richard Brandon, he's, he was here in the first service, and I were so blessed to be able to travel to Nepal and to 
visit one of our missionaries over on the east side of the country. And by the way, just so you know, if you ever travel to a third world country with Richard Brandon, I want you to know ahead of time that no matter what glass of water is handed to him, he'll drink it. So you've got to be really careful. It's really alarming. But anyway, one morning we were standing in this courtyard and a bunch of people were wandering around there with their milk tea, kind of like we do with our coffee, I guess, enjoying the morning. And we didn't know anyone. In fact, if our guy that was our faithful host hadn't come to, to get us like he promised, we would have just stood there all day and watched, watching this guy across the street killing his chickens. But... And we couldn't even speak the language. But as we were standing there from clear across the yard, weaving through all the mingling people, this little Nepali guy, probably the size of Zacchaeus, I would imagine, was, he was making a beeline right to us. We were like, what in the heck is going on? And he comes right up to us and he says in English, he says, you guys are Christians, aren't you? And we were like, yeah. And he said, I am too, brothers. And with that knowledge, by the Spirit, there was all of a sudden this invisible unity that we enjoyed as we talked to him. He was our brother. And we were connected through Christ, fitted together, each one of us a member of the other. There was, there's kind of an, an invisible unity in the church. And if you're a real born-again Christian, you've probably experienced this invisible unity yourself, haven't you? Yeah. Knowing this invisible unity that the whole worldwide true body of Christ enjoys with the affections that come along with the new birth, each of us is compelled to join through membership a local body of believers. We want to now. It's one of the reasons why we have formal membership here at Hayden Bible Church, to provide that visible reality of what's invisible in us by the Spirit of God. Are you compelled to join this local body of believers? Have you entered into membership here? Or do you see yourself as independent, separate? I wonder why that is. The church is a unified temple displaying his glory. There's also a visible unity, isn't there? The other night at our Wednesday study, one of our dear sisters shared how before she had trusted in Christ, before she had become a Christian, she had seen how Christians seemed so supportive, or even protective of one another. And she, and she noticed how unwavering their mutual love was for one another and that it was an, an anomaly that she marveled at. She saw a visible unity that glorified God in those Christians. They were a unified temple displaying his glory, shining the light of his righteousness for all to see into dark places. In fact, our assembling here together today, of course, is a sign of our visual, visible unity. Actually, in a sense, baptism is a sign of our unity. And communion, like we celebrated today, is a sign of our visible unity. The scripture tells of this unity and then compels us to maintain it on purpose. Remember from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is imperative. This takes diligence. Other translations say endeavoring. This says no to sin and yes to righteousness. How are you endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? By beating and mutilating your dear sister on Facebook because she hasn't yielded to your stance on masks or vaccines? Is that how? That happened. In Romans 14, Paul writes and says, Do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You're a unified temple displaying God's glory. Maybe today is a good day to read the rest of Ephesians 4, maybe even focusing on verses 13 through 16, maybe later this afternoon. Next. Notice this morning that God's church is a holy temple displaying his glory. A holy temple. And again, back in Ephesians 2, in Christ you, church, are a holy temple for the Lord. Verse 21, with Christ as the cornerstone, you all are being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. God's church is a holy temple displaying his glory. I'm going to talk about that word holy for a few minutes. Maybe turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 30. Exodus 30. There's a kind of a neat passage that I really like to see to get the feel of what holiness means. Just to get the feel of what holiness means. Exodus 30. Verse, starting in verse 34. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacti and onica and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from among his people. Holy, not for common use. This is special unto the Lord. Does holiness seem old-fashioned? Maybe something that pastors and grandmas talk about? Like some sort of old-fashioned, antiquated idea that really isn't relevant anymore? Do you see this congregation here at Hayden Bible Church as a holy temple in the Lord? 
I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the assembly of believers here. Is this holy in your heart? By the way, when I was growing up, my parents were snow skiers. And as a little kid, probably seven years old, they introduced my sister and I up to, to skiing up in Schweitzer, up in Sandpoint. And before we went skiing for the first time, they took us to town. It's a town, they also called it the big city. We're going to the big city. And we went to a ski shop, and they let us look through all the little kids' outfits for skiing, and they said, hey, pick out your favorite ski suit. It was kind of like school shopping, but only it was for skiing. And so we each got bibs and a jacket and gloves and a hat. And they told us that we couldn't play out in the yard in the snow with this ski outfit. We could, we could only use it for the special purpose of skiing. So every time we went, it was like an extra special thing that we got to put on our ski clothes. One morning we were loading the car up to go up to Schweitzer, and, and I was loading our gear in the back. Mom wanted me to, to load the lunch and our ski boots and, and the other things into the car, and Dad had the car running to warm it up, and I was standing in my special ski clothes with my leg right off the end of the tailpipe. And while I was standing there, the exhaust melted my bibs from the knee down, I held this stupid little outfit in such high esteem because it was so special. And, and the day was so special that I instantly just started screaming and crying and my folks thought I got ran over or something. But it was really the, no, the, that I had unknowingly stood in the wrong place at the wrong time and ended up damaging my outfit. In a kid's sense, the, the ski outfit was holy to me. It had a special purpose. It was only for a special occasion. It wasn't for common use. It was precious to a seven-year-old. Let me ask you, is there a chance that that's the way you see God's church? Precious and special. You, you would never want to damage the church. A precious possession from your father that he says to take really good care of. Holy. You, church, ecclesia, you are a holy body of fellowship. You've been sanctified or set apart by the spirit of the living God. You're not common. You're not like all the other clothes in the closet, so to speak. You have to see this morning that on an individual sense, this gives immense meaning and value to your life. We've already read, do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Please, please let your identity and your purpose and your value be built on this, not on anything on earth. If you are in Christ, you are heavenly, holy, not common. Live as holy, righteousness and purity and joy in the Spirit. And as you gaze your eyes on Jesus, as you are infatuated with him, you will be transformed into the same image from glory to glory to glory. 1 Peter 1, 
Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And guys, that's not a downer. It's not antiquated thinking. It's not old-fashioned. It's the best thing. It's careful. It's living what God has declared regarding you as the body of Christ. It's my mom and dad saying that the ski outfit was only for a special purpose of that one activity. You belong to him. Over the years in our adult Sunday school a couple of times, we've gone through a a very basic study of God by Paul Washer called The One True God. And I say basic, but really it's profound when you actually go through it. I highly recommend it if you can find it. But in the section called God is Holy, Paul Washer writes that God is separate from and transcendent above his creation. And he is separate from and transcendent above his creation's corruption. God says, be holy as I am holy. Again, from 2 Peter 1, Peter writes that by God's divine power, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Of course, in the context of Ephesians 2, corporately or as a group, God's church is a holy temple displaying his glory. Remember, church, you're a holy nation. You're the city of God, the city whose builder and architect is God, a holy temple in the Lord, Paul says in Ephesians, fitted and joined together, aligned with Christ, the cornerstone, displaying God's glory for all the world to see, shining the righteous light of Christ into dark places. Pursue his holiness. Finally, this morning, God's church is a truth-bearing temple displaying his glory. His church is a truth-bearing temple displaying his glory. You remember how the Apostle Paul encouraged and discipled Timothy in these things. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul is, is writing to Timothy, and he says, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. Again, the pillar and support of what? The truth. Let that sink deeply into our ears. It's not the progressive liberal agenda. It's not the conservative conspiracy theory opposing it, but the truth, the solid, unwavering, reliable truth that's found in the word of God. Jesus in John 17, 17 says himself, he says, the word of God is truth. By the way, much more on the word next weekend. What is a pillar anyway? 
Of course, in a structure, a pillar supports the superstructure. It holds weight. It's the key to the stability of the structure. The weight above bears on the pillars. And even more so, from different places in Genesis, you can see, and don't go there now, but later, a pillar is a testimony. A pillar is a memorial. A pillar is a witness. And you, Hayden Bible Church, you are a truth-bearing temple displaying God's glory. I want to know what truths are you testifying about? What truths are you upholding? Is it even truth? Are you sure it's truth? Where do you get your truth? With whom are you sharing your truth? Your mission, my mission, Jesus himself, the cornerstone of our temple says, is is to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Saints, the word of God, all that he's commanded us is the pure as crystal word. It should be flowing out of this great temple, the city of God, like a river with white water and rapids flooding the earth and yielding all kinds of fruit everywhere it flows. Rivers of living water flowing out of us. The Holy Spirit enlivened word of God bearing the fruit of redeemed souls everywhere. Again, what river flows out of you? Does it heal nations? Does it bear fruit? Remember this morning, as God's church, you and I, This assembly, the visible and invisible church established by God himself, we are the temple of God's glory on earth. A unified temple displaying his glory. A a holy temple displaying his glory. A truth-bearing temple displaying his glory. You are being built up into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You are are a spiritual house built using living stones. You are the place where God meets with his people in joyful, worshipful fellowship. You are the holy temple of the Lord on this earth, a permanent home from God. Glorify him today as we leave this place, okay? Let's pray. Father, what a blessing to be a member of this temple this wonderful place. A place that you've built. And not, not a place of human hands, Lord. A place that's being constructed one soul at a time. One living stone at a time. Today, Lord, let us, help us see this reality of us as the church. Truth-bearing holy, unified. Let us walk out of this place and show the world that light. Father, we're grateful that you've called us into this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.